Amen. Good morning. Hey, I'm Cameron. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Christ Community Church. It's good to be with you all this morning. If you would be turning in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 4, we'll be in verses 7 through 12 this morning. And as you're turning there, let me give you the key truth that I would love for us to walk away with. It's that God cultivates our redemption for the redemption of others. Let me say that again. God cultivates our redemption for the redemption of others. So if you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, this is Ruth chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Mahalon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Mahalon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, as we step into this text uh, and, and remembering from last week that there is a historicity that's very important for us to, to keep in mind, right? We're here because of the things these folks did in history. We're here because of what Christ has done in history. Think about what we were singing in that first song, how Jesus is truly the Lord of history. Now, that creates all kinds of different questions about varying aspects of history for sure, but it is very important for us to recognize that he is a real king uh, who came in real time, who's coming again in real time, who is interceding for us in real time, whose Holy Spirit is operating in real time, who's, who is evidencing the love of God in real time, right? We can sometimes get tangled up in, in making some of this overly abstract, Right? In fact, I was having a conversation, and this guy brings or sends you all greetings. His name is Matt Sowers. Uh, he and I hung out yesterday, and uh, we were talking about, he was using the term theology uh, in a very abstract way. And I said, Matt, theology is uh, the knowledge of God applied. There's, there's not an abstraction. We need to take that term back. What, what you might be talking about is just knowledge. There's a way of knowing abstract things that doesn't affect you relationally or personally, right? Well, theology is not that. We have let it become uh, a bit too erudite, and I'm worried that we've also let the person of God himself become erudite in that process. And we need to make sure that we're fighting back toward the relational nature and love of God. Now, there's some language in this passage that for our modern ears makes us a little nervous, does it not? Talking about buying folks. Talking about purchasing things where there's a, a sense in which that tension is actually intended. 
And it's intended to, to, as to whether or not we've actually been paying attention to how the story has unfolded. We'll get to that in just a moment. But do remember that we are here because of the historicity of things, because folks in real time have loved as they have been loved, right? So the first question I have for us is, is a dovetail from last week in a sense, but it's worthy of us continuing to think about. Who all contributed to your redemption in Christ? There's names that you can put to people. Uh, I shared a couple last week. Gwen, Mr. Ingram, and there's others. Susan certainly is a big part of my redemption in Christ. And, and it's very important uh, that, that uh, you hear this because it was her actions. It was, it was never the, her trying to dazzle me with her knowledge of things. It was how she lived. I kept looking at someone who was going through an immense amount of suffering, as she was at the time when we met, and she was handling it with a grace that I could not comprehend. And it, was, it, it stunned me. And it also stunned me, uh, as we began to date, how kind she was to me. I was meaner than a wall-eyed rattlesnake, if you know what that means. And she uh, evidenced a kindness that was not foolish. See, at times, I almost thought it was. I, was. I was foolish enough to think that she was being foolish, and she wasn't. She was actually living out the historical gospel that had taken hold of her heart and mind because of God's love for her. I was also deeply affected by a guy named John King, who was paralyzed from the neck down. And I worked for him on the night shift. And I've said before, it, he helped create my utter disdain for the show In the Heat of the Night and Golden Girls. Uh, I've seen every episode. I can't tell you how many times. Uh, and so I, I watched him, who was paralyzed and had nothing left, it seemed, physically, except his presence and his love. And his family loved me uh, in a way like I was family. And John contributed to me seeing the gospel lived out in real time under one of what I would argue is the hardest medical circumstances you can try to do it. Because he had all of his faculties, right? But he couldn't move anything but his head from side to side just a little bit. And so you would do well this Lord's Day Sabbath to consider and think back on uh, those who have contributed historically, in real time, to you being uh, who you are in Christ. Uh, and because it is, a, it's, I'm sure it's a wonderful parade of providence, to use a Joe Novenson term, uh, a wonderful parade of providence that the Lord has uh, put forth in your life in real time. And it's worth you maybe recognizing how deep the well, how deep the Father's love for you because of his working through so many different circumstances. And so we have here the unfolding of the historical reality in a way that it sounds like business language. But let's not forget the relationship that's been forming between Boaz and Ruth. The respect that they have for each other because of their character. Remember, they're described many times throughout the book of Ruth as worthy. Think about that term theologically. What does it mean to be worthy? Andrew Peterson has a great song called, Is He Worthy? And the answer is, he is. And, and we become worthy of God's love because of what Christ has done. We don't earn it. Our worth is not anything that we can generate. It's what God has already bestowed upon us. And I get it. That's the sense in which Ephesians 1 is so mysterious and that he would love us from before the foundation of the world. But that kind of love is, is, is moving to me. 
And it's not, it's not just abstract, it's personal. God actually loves me and he loves you personally. And think about one thing that we talked about from last week. Your redemption continues to cost him, by the way. Mine does too. Doesn't take much. I was on the freeway yesterday, and you know that Jesus was interceding and probably sweating a little bit. No, no, he doesn't sweat. But he had to intercede because I was on 285, and I forgot my Christianity for a little while. Uh, and then I remembered it, and that was good, and I didn't get in any trouble, right? Uh, and, but it's, it's, we are constantly in need of the intercession of Christ, the, the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the remembering of what Christ has done for us. I am not in any way, shape, nor form saying that sin doesn't matter. In fact, I'm saying it matters all the more because of that, right? But am I going to be perfect? Are you going to be perfect? No. And the thing that you're going to need to remember that's going to help you want to do actually what Boaz and Ruth actually do, which is to live worthy lives, you're going to need to know that you are loved and you're going to need to know that you are forgiven uh, because we can't carry the weight of that by ourselves. That's a cross only Christ can carry. And so as we step into this, we have this weird custom that commentators uh, don't understand. It's not a biblical custom. In fact, the writer of Ruth makes it very clear. It was just cultural. It says, now this was the custom in former times. Uh, And so there was a sense in which if you're making a deal at the gate, you take your shoe off. Now, why they do that, you could spill all kind of ink trying to figure out what meaning there is behind that. I don't think you can get there from here. So this was just what they did. It's how they went about contractual things, right? And so we have here the Redeemer who's made it very clear, who's not named, the unnamed Redeemer. He's not willing to pay the cost or risk is the better term. He's not willing to risk what he has for his family in order to bless or help redeem another family. And we can't fault him entirely for that. That may be wisdom in his case. If he's not willing to pay the cost, praise be to God, he gave it to one who does, which is Boaz. And remember, there's no guarantee that Ruth is going to have children, by the way. Remember, she's been barren for 10 years in the first marriage. So there's not a lot of guarantee that this will actually work out except for hope, except that the Lord is at work in this and seems to be uh, bringing them along towards something. And so the the language here sounds commodified, this exchanging and buying and those kind of things. We would do better to, to actually, as we read it, not think of bought but redeemed. Because he's redeeming uh, Elimelech's land for what purpose for Naomi? Is he going to kick her off the land or is he going to take care of her long into her widowhood? He's going to take care of her. How do we know that? Well, you'll actually hear that next week. And so, uh, as far as Ruth is concerned, does he not actually respect and, and genuinely seem to love her based on what we've read so far? So it's not, it's, this isn't just about him. He sees it as a kindness to him. He's an older man. He himself may be barren and not able to grant her children, which would be helpful to her existence and to her widowhood as well. But he's stepping in and redeeming. Right? That's the real language here. We've seen it's relational. It's not commodified. This is very important to us because you and I have been redeemed or bought with a price, have we not? It was, our redemption was genuinely costly to God. And I don't understand what that means. I just know it's what he says. There was genuine grief in the process of his son suffering what he suffered in real time with real pain synapses, with real suffering. 
And, and it continues to be costly because of who we are and the process it takes to glorify us. But praise be to God, he's willing to continue in that, and we are not commodities. He did not save us to be cannon fodder. He did not save us to in any way, shape, nor form serve him in any other way than just for glory and joy. We get way more out of the deal than he does. He saves us for our being loved, beloved children of his. He saves us essentially, now hear me rightly, ourselves. We get all the upside and benefit. It is blessing to us. What's the guarantee that any of us are actually going to turn out all right? The word itself says he will finish what he started, right? But there's some real bumps along the way, are there not? There's some real struggles and doubts and, and crises of faith and crises uh, of, of family and crises of marriage and crises of parenting and crises upon crises, right? This is life in a fallen world. And yet, he longs for us to taste and see that he is good in real time on a regular basis. He has re redeemed us so that we would be nourished and built up and not grow weary in doing the good to which he has called us. He's essentially inviting us in to see something that is utterly dazzling and amazing. And we would do well to ask for the eyes to see and the ears to hear that. Uh, and sometimes, just like this story, it just doesn't look like much. It doesn't look like much as it's unfolding, but it's got big implications. And so Boaz finishes what he said he would do. He finishes what he started. And notice that what the crowd does. These words that are spoken by the crowd who are gathered, who are witnesses, uh, serve to, to really give us some context and how they were thinking about it. See, they had a historical perspective. Listen to what they said. I'm picking this up uh, in verse 11. It says, Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah. Notice where the emphasis and the burden is placed. On whom? The Lord. May the Lord make Ruth. And it's interesting that he picked a story from Genesis 29 and 30, is it not? Rachel and Leah, who built up the house of Israel. Now, who are Rachel and Leah? Well, they are Jacob's wives. From that story, if you remember, their dad, Laban, he was trying to get what we call a two-for-one deal. Jacob really liked Rachel because she was beautiful to behold. And that's who he was drawn to. And that's, that's, but Laban, he wanted to get some more out of the deal. And so he, he bamboozled Jacob with Leah. And there's, in that story, you, you have an interesting circumstance where Leah is not really liked by the other folks and is kind of put down and is, is, is not quite as pretty as Rachel. And the Lord shows her kindness and opens her womb and thus begins the, the, the filling out of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, you could hear that story and go, huh, does that mean we can have more than one wife? And that's not the point of the story. In fact, notice it is God's grace to not step it. In fact, I'm, I'm going to argue, and you'll hear this more in, in the Esther series, but we are way more legalistic than God is. Uh, we, we hear stuff and want to know what we can get away with, right? 
God doesn't step in and destroy Laban or Leah or Rachel. His grace continues to work in and through them. It's not baptizing the circumstance, it's redeeming it. Right? And so he is willing to work through a difficult circumstance. Notice a repeating pattern in Ruth's story. All of her forebears went about trying to orchestrate their own deal, their own essential redemption. Ruth, in contrast, doesn't necessarily do that. She, yes, she does act as an agent in all of this by going to the threshing floor. But she acts very differently than her great-great-great-great-grandmas who got lot drunk, their dad, and had kids through him. She acts differently than, than Tamar, who gets mentioned here in just a moment, who uh, bamboozles Judah in order to have a child and ends up protecting herself, saving herself, as if that's the only way. So Ruth, again and again and again, shows that when it comes time for her to take things into her own hands, she doesn't. She actually trusts the Lord to provide. The Lord who is brand new to her, by the way. And so this is, this is instructive to us. That we would do well to recognize that the things that we are trying to seize or earn or, or do by our own hands, apart from the Lord, especially when it is outside of his righteous character, when it goes against who he is, according to Exodus 34, 6, and 7. It goes against, the, the, fundamentally, the fruit of the Spirit. It goes against fruits in keeping with repentance, which Christ calls us to. When we do those kinds of things, yes, the Lord may be gracious. That's his decision. And he might not. All the more, though, we should recognize how deeply we are loved and that we don't have to go about it that way. We don't have to go about trying to save ourselves. What is it you think you could do to actually save yourself, ultimately? And it not just be selfish. See, this, this redemption is communal. It's for the life of the world. So we are not being just saved individually in historical time just for ourselves. It's also for those in our spheres of influence and the generations who will come after us. This is God's love being displayed across space and time, but in real time in history. And so they say, may the Lord redeem the circumstance and work through you to continue his redemptive mission. Now, we're going to see next week that that prophecy, that blessing comes to pass. And then they turn, they turn to Boaz and say, um, may you act worthily. In Ephratha. Again, they're saying, may you continue to display the righteous character of God in and through how you live your life for the benefit of all around you. This is a challenge to Boaz to recognize the Lord has been good to you, Boaz. The Lord has blessed you because he loves you. Live reflecting that blessing. Show that it means something to you and that will mean something to those around you. And then there's kind of the, the couplet continues, and be renowned in Bethlehem. Be renowned for what? What is it that Boaz has been known for? Well, it's been his righteous character. He is reflecting of the character of God. What should he continue to be renowned for now that he has been blessed with some land and, and, a, and a wife? How must he live out this blessing? Well, keep doing what you've been doing, Boaz. 
Keep being who you've been as beloved of God. This is also an important thing for us to hear because there are times, and I'm guilty, right? I can be very, very prayerful and righteous when things aren't going well. But, but a little blessing comes along, things start to get easy, and I don't show up so much. And my character can begin to drift. And you may think, man, why are you pastoring the church if that's true of you? Well, that's a question for y'all to answer at some point. But, but it's just true, isn't it? We do. We, this has been Israel's problem the whole way along. We, we, we get a little fat, or a lot fat in my case, and happy. And we start to think, we deserve it. This is the way it should be. Right? I, this is pretty good. I don't think this should change. And God, I'll let you know if I start seeing things get off a little bit. I'll let you know how you need to correct it. Instead of being a people who are humbled by each and every gift that he grants to us. Recognizing we are deserving of none of it, but made worthy because of Christ to receive all of it. Praise be to God that he is so gracious to us. And then he goes on to say, or the witnesses go on to say, and may your house be like the house of Perez. Now, whatever this means, we have no idea because Perez just doesn't get talked about in Scripture beyond being the twin, part of the twin boys uh, that are born of Judah and Tamar. So it's not like this is real clear to us other than to say, may your house be like the house of Perez, meaning part of the seed of the woman, going all the way back to Genesis 3.15. May your house, may your lineage be part of the king who is coming that was promised in Genesis 49 to Judah, that the scepter would never depart from the tribe of Judah. Now again... This is where we as Westerners are like, man, I don't know. Judah didn't look like a king all the time, and his tribe, they kind of disappear at times. Yes, that may be true as far as our historical eyes are concerned, but the Lord maintained that the king would come, the scepter would come. The scepter, for those of you, that's the thing that the king holds. That's going to be an important thing when we get to Esther. And so uh, it's, it's, it's evidence of his kingliness, his power. Right? Like if you tried to walk in on a king, he's holding the scepter, and he doesn't point it at you, you just sealed your death. You can be killed for just walking into the king's chambers and trying to approach him if he doesn't tell you to come by pointing the scepter. So the scepter is this, this, this thing of power in a sense. And so here we have the, the, those who are gathered and witnessing, they're speaking of a historicity. They're going back to Genesis 38, Genesis 49. Notice how much of Genesis shows up in Ruth. Like, as my seminary professors would say, the book of Ruth is almost opaque to you if you don't have some knowledge of the history of Genesis and what's going on there. And so we see they have that knowledge. They're in hope prophesying that that the king would come through this line. And as we'll see, this will come to pass. And they even, are they naming, claiming here, they say, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman? They're not naming and claiming something in uh, just pulling it out of thin air. They're recognizing who these people are. They recognize their lineage. They recognize the prophecies that have been foretold. They recognize the promises of God to bring a king to redeem his people. And so they're able to speak in such a way with a hope that actually has some substance and historicity to it. 
This isn't just a foolish hope. This isn't fingers crossed. This isn't hyperbolic. This is real. Because they knew, they knew the word of God. They knew the promises of God. We would do well as his people to, to be versed in the promises of God, to be versed in understanding what the second coming is going to be for us. To, to have some sense of the hope and the creativity and the beauty of what is to come. That it'll be material and it'll be historical. It will come in real time. And eternity, I, I'm out of my league right about now once I say that word and how all that works in terms of time and history. I'm just glad I'm going to get to be there. They'll work out all the other stuff. They, they won't, I don't know that there'll be a Q&A from me uh, at that point. You know, that God's going to be like, well, let me explain it to you. No, just let me enjoy it. Too often we're trying to explain what we ought just enjoy. And so here we have this picture of people who know who God is, who know they are beloved of God, who know the promises of God, participating in the historical unfolding of his redemptive plan in and through what is just an ordinary, everyday circumstance by their lights and even by ours. And praise be to God that this is how he works. These are the things that he does. He works through ordinary circumstances. That he uses circumstances that are not perfect. Right? That one of Lot's great, 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 great granddaughters would actually be in the line of Christ. That's not perfect. That's not clean. That he would use death to bring life more abundant. The great exchange. Listen to what David J. Atkinson says about this passage. He says, through the self-sacrificing act of Boaz, Ruth had been established as belonging within the people of God, which is, by the way, a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, you see. We've talked about this before. She blessed Naomi, and the Lord has blessed her. And it goes on, Boaz had expressed in practice himself what he believed to be true of God's action towards his people. That is always the calling of the people of God. People who are redeemed are to be the agents through whom others find redemption. Did you hear that? Now, I want to pause here because each of us has different gifts and abilities. We're wired different ways. So here's the wonderful, wonderful good news. There is not one way in which the Lord goes about this. There is not one personality type or circumstance that he blesses more than others. We all are working together in and through the power of God who is omniscient, omnipotent, providential, sovereign, right? And so, so I don't want you to hear that as, well, I got to get busy. I need to pass out some tracks. Maybe I need to purchase a bullhorn. What do we need to do here to live this out? How you live it out, because God is sovereign and providential, is be a Christian. Display his character, consider the fruit of the Spirit, be quick to repent and bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and the other things will almost, you'll trip over them. I've seen it many times that really just the living out of our Christianity is, it grants us opportunities. Uh, it grants us opportunities in conversations. You've got to have the eyes to see and the ears to hear. Don't forget that the people in your family around you also need Jesus. Whether you would want to spend an eternity with them or not, well, that's another matter. But God will work that out too. We're all going to be glad to be there, and we, we don't want to look around and see folks left out that we had the opportunity to share with, correct? And that sharing is not just verbal. It's indeed as well. And some of us, 
do more talking than others. Susan has an amazing, I'll call it track record, with people that she's worked with coming to Christ who she never, ever, ever shared the gospel with in any sort of outline form. And sometimes never even got around to it in direct form. They just knew what she was. In fact, I'm one of them. They knew what she was. They saw her character. And they were moved to go, what is that? where does that come from? What kind of, where does love like that come from? And begin to investigate. Right? And so I want to encourage you not to hear that as, all right, got to add a bunch of stuff to who you are. No, you need to leverage what you have. You need to recognize the value of where the Lord has placed you because he has placed you where you are by virtue of his sovereignty in real time, historically, for the people around you, right? And you could begin to actually pray that he would help you to have those eyes to see and help, help you to be a better witness within that context, living out his character. Uh, and so we need to recognize that our redemption is not just for us, Right? It's for those around us. It is for us in the sense that it should bring us joy. It should change who we are and how we live. So how can your redemption benefit the redemptive work going on in the lives of those in your spheres of influence? That's a question that you have to kind of ask in an ongoing fashion. That's not just a one-and-done type deal. Now, for some of us, uh, like I said, you are in a season in particular where survival is maybe kind of the primary mode for right now. Don't feel guilty about that. Part of that survival story, the Lord will use to benefit others because there are so many people hurting and think there's no way out, no options. There's so many circumstances in which people are drowning and they don't see any way out. I'm not saying you got to be this huge redemption story. No, just survive and the Lord will take care of what it looks like and how it will benefit other people. I can't tell you how many times just knowing what people have gone through and being able to say, I live to tell about it, even though it wasn't clean or amazing. Uh, sometimes that, that the Lord uses those kinds of stories in profound and impactful ways. So if you find yourself in survival mode right now, take heart, take heart. Don't feel guilty about what you don't think you're getting to right now. Survive in the means of grace, and that will, will testify in and of itself. So Ruth 4, 7 through 12, teaches us that God cultivates our redemption for the redemption of others. This is something that he, he does, and this is something we should be aware of. And what a gift it is on a morning where we would hear that, where that could easily kind of make us feel anxious, or like we need to do more stuff, or like we need to get spun up and excited. You should get excited. You're loved of God. But that we would be able to come to the table and be nourished for the road ahead, that we would be reminded of the Christ who comes in real time and in real history, who laid down his life for us, really, who suffered for us, really, who bore the wrath of God in full on our behalf, really, not in theory, not in abstraction, in real time and in real pain. And that he did so because he loves us. I can't help but hear the words of John 17 when he's praying. He says, I'm not praying just for y'all who are here. I'm praying for the generations that will come. I want them to know their love. That's kind of the book of Ruth is kind of God saying to the generations that are coming, I love you. And I'm providing all along the way in circumstances that you would think, 
no way this ends up in some grand kingly line. And it does. And so the Lord is nourishing us in first and foremost in his love for us and in his, his desire to be with us. Even though, I get it, it's been a busy season. We're tired. We can barely keep our eyes open sometimes when so much grandeur and mystery is before us. And yet the Lord still says, come. Come and partake. Come and be nourished. Come and behold. Right? And so, for those of you who are Christians, you may be doubting, you may be struggling, you may be in survival mode. You need this table to keep going. You need this table to be reminded of who and whose you are. For those of you who uh, uh, don't know Christ as Savior, this table is really not for you right now. I hope it will be someday. If you would like to talk about that with one of us uh, after the service or in the weeks ahead, we would love to talk to you about what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it look like to become a Christian so that you could partake of the table? If there are those of you who are harboring an unforgiveness that you're unwilling to relent of, you're unwilling to repent of, you're unwilling to uh, allow for God's redemption, well, you too should not partake of this table. And, and again, we'd love to talk to you about that. Maybe there's a, a way in which you're thinking about it that's not, not really... Uh, as strong as you thought or something you do, in fact, need to repent of. There's no, there's no shame uh, in being able to come to a, a, a clear conclusion about where you stand on something. And, and for anybody and everybody who knows Jesus as Savior, this is your table. This is your meal and you are invited. And so when the elements come by, uh, you can take of the bread. There's bread in a cup and then there's the communion MRE, which is where the juice is. Um, if you would hold, we're all going to take together as family, recognizing we've been brought to this place in real time together by God's providence and sovereignty. Even if we don't know how all the puzzle pieces fit or what exactly he's doing in any given circumstance, but praise be to God, you're here today to hear the gospel and taste of the gospel. So let's do that as those who have great hope, knowing that maybe we don't know the way forward, maybe we don't know how things are going to work out, but we can't wait to see what God's going to do because of his promises. The yes and amen being Jesus. If the elders would come forward, let's remember that on the night that Jesus was preparing to go to the cross to lay his life down because of his profound love for us, because of God's profound love for us, he took ordinary bread and signaled to him that this, even this, this bread can remind you often, as often as you eat of it, it can remind you that I laid my life down for you, that I gave my body for you. And then as the meal went on, he took wine, which would have been a, a common drink uh, within their meals, and he said, and this, this cup, this cup represents the forgiveness of sins, that I am going to shed my blood for you so that you can become a new creation, that you would go from having a heart of stone to having a heart of flesh that you can actually be pleasing to the Lord our God and relate to him directly. You can go boldly before the throne of grace. That's what that cup represented. And so this is a perpetual reminder to us of how deep the Father's love, how profound the beauty of the gospel, how much is actually going on when even we don't see it. And so as you receive the elements, consider these things. Consider how your redemption is not just for you, Consider how uh, God has provided a profound number of people to help encourage you in the gospel and help you to grow in knowing you are loved. What a gift that is.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these elements. We thank you for this reminder. We thank you, more importantly, for Christ who came in real time, who broke forth into history and changed redemptively for your people everything. God, we thank you that he continues to, in real time, intercede for us and long for us to know who and whose we are. Help us to remember that this morning so that we could, we could offer that hospitably to those in our spheres of influence in the various ways in which you have gifted us and you have, you have uh, granted us opportunity. Bless us, Lord. May this, this bread and this juice spiritually nourish us for the days ahead. In Christ's name, amen.